welcome. So glad you could join us. This is Faith Is, and I am Pastor Rick Stevens. Today on the program, we're going to look at a man who could not speak and a woman who could not be still. And it turned out to be very good for both of them and for us. And they're going to help us by their example and by their encounter with Jesus develop a stronger, more robust, more confident faith in him, because we consider faith as absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we find in these two stories that these people found Jesus trustworthy, and they were willing to encounter him, and they walked away with the answer to their request with Jesus intervening in their lives. So let's take a look. We're going to start on the first part of the program with the encounter that Jesus had with this woman, and it's the story from Mark chapter 7. So if you'd like to follow along and you have your Bible, Mark chapter 7, I'm going to read the story. It's not very long. It starts with verse 24, and I'm reading from the New International Version. So let's just get started. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. You know, a few of us can imagine what it must be like to be a parent in this case, to be a mother and to recognize that your daughter has an impure spirit or unclean spirit, various English translations to use different words for that. Essentially, though, as we've seen, it's an evil spirit. And as it's described in this English translation, it's referred to as a demon. And so that's a serious problem, a serious problem that requires serious attention and serious resources, and not something that we on our own would ever be able to resolve. So let's take a look at this story and see what it means and what it means to us that Jesus was willing to encounter this woman, a Gentile woman, and she went home to find the demon gone. So we get a first glimpse of what's going on when it opens, the story opens with the information that Jesus went to Gentile ter territory the vicinity of Tyre. And there he entered a house. He, he went not to encounter people to, to teach or apparently to heal, because he, it says in the text, and it gives us no explanation for this, that he entered a house and tried to escape notice. But immediately, we recognize that he did not escape notice. This woman saw him, and she went to him because her daughter needed what she could not provide. Now, it's important to recognize that she was a Gentile, and that significance becomes clear as we go through the story, but don't forget that. It identifies her as a Phoenician woman from Syria, so we get a little context of what's going on. 
We also understand that in this area of the world, the Gentiles were pretty well off, and so that also has some impact in the story. But the biggest, the biggest thing that jumps out to us is that it describes her daughter as possessed by an impure spirit. Now, it doesn't explain how they knew that, how she knew it, or anything like that. It just tells us that's what happened, and there's no question about it. Jesus doesn't question whether that's true. It's just a fact. Now, it's also very interesting that in the first mention, it talks about how she has an impure spirit, or some English translations say unclean spirit, but then when she begged Jesus to help, she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Now, why would the writer of Mark do it that way? Well, we kind of wonder if perhaps Mark was pointing out something about uncleanness and its connection to, in this case, demon possession, because just prior to this encounter with this woman, as Mark tells the story, Jesus had had a conversation, uh, maybe we could call it a, a debate with uh, religious leaders about the whole question of clean and unclean. So here we see Jesus encountering this woman, or maybe this woman encountering Jesus, and Jesus manages to handle an impure or unclean spirit and make the girl whole. So one of the things that we should recognize right away, considering the context of the story, is that Jesus does make people clean, and he makes them whole, and he can deal with uncleanness of any kind. And we should be glad about that, and we should rejoice about that. It makes a big difference. The other thing we should recognize is that as the woman begs Jesus to take care of the demon in her daughter, it describes her as falling at his feet. Now, we don't think of um, people falling at each other's feet, but this was a common response in these days, so it's really not particularly unusual. It might be unusual to think of a Gentile falling at the feet of Jesus, but obviously she knew something about Jesus, and we're not told what that caused her to have confidence in him, and she would fall at his feet, which was a common response of a lesser person acknowledging a greater person. And clearly, Jesus was the greatest person, so clearly this was appropriate for her to do that, and she in that way honored him as that person and began the, the conversation on a positive note because she entrusted herself to him and acknowledged that he, that he was great enough and had power enough to accomplish the task. So Jesus shows in his discussions previously with the debaters about this clean, unclean, that defilement comes from within. Here we see this child who was defiled on the inside by this impure spirit, this demon, and Jesus takes care of that inside job and makes her clean. Now, there's a little more to the story before this actually takes place, because while the woman begs Jesus to help, Jesus' response is really quite interesting. He says in verse 27, first, let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now, there's some interesting symbolism going on here, and Jesus uses the story of the dogs and bread and children, and it, the story, of course, relates to a child, the daughter of this woman. So let's, let's start with one of the references that, that we don't want to get sidetracked on. And you'll read a lot of things, I've read a lot of things in preparing for this, that, that remind us that this expression of dogs was something that was not uncommon in these days, that, that Jewish people referred to Gentiles as 
dogs, and it was not it was not kind. See, in those days, dogs were most often wild, untamed scavengers, and they weren't pleasant to be around. And so when someone was referred to as a dog, it was an insult. It was an unkindness. Uh, it was rude. Uh, it was unapologetically in your face. But that's not what's going on here. And sometimes we get distracted by that because we need to dig a little deeper. And when we do, we discover that here the reference to dogs was not the same as references in other places. Here Jesus refers to a little dog, or it could be a puppy or puppies, not the wild dogs that we might think. In other words, he's referring to a small dog that, to use our description, it doesn't say this in the text, it does say small dog or referring to a puppy, but essentially we would think of that as a pet. Someone would have a pet, a small dog in their house. Well, it wasn't common for the ordinary people of the day to have a dog in their house. However, households of Greek influence sometimes did have dogs as pets. And this woman being Greek and being from the vicinity of Tyre here may very well have been from a household that had small dogs as pets. Very important to understand that connection so we don't get distracted in thinking that, well, Jesus is just insulting her and she has to put up with it. It's not like that at all. And so then the role of the small dog in the household plays into this story and how the woman uses that to her advantage and how Jesus recognizes what she has noticed. So when it comes to the dog part of the story, let's just continue that so we don't get lost in that. Uh, she replies to Jesus that even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So she doesn't argue with Jesus about the priority of the children eating first. And most of us wouldn't argue with that either. I mean, who of us would? Because we feed our children first and the dogs get the leftovers. Or in a lot of households, the dogs have their own food. But you understand the comparison here. And, and who knows? I mean, in our way of thinking, uh, surely none of us have ever seen a child sneak food off their plate and give it to the pet, the family dog that's hanging around under the table. Well, of course, we've seen that. Of course, we know about that. And that's a little bit of the image here when she says, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs because there's leftover or the children would deliberately give some to the dogs. So she's arguing that while the children come first, there still tends to be plenty of leftover bread for the dogs under the table. So don't get distracted by the dog thing. It's um, it's a perfectly legitimate reference and a perfectly understandable one. Now, the idea of the children coming first was clearly what Jesus was trying to say here was that he came for, as, as it says other places in the New Testament, the lost sheep of, of Israel. His first priority clearly was to come to the Jewish people. And, and again, she acknowledges that priority. And, and it's real interesting. We need to make sure we understand that Jesus said first, let the children eat. He doesn't say only 
let the children eat. So sometimes we can get a little ahead of ourselves on these kinds of things. Let's not get ahead of ourselves on this one, because all Jesus is saying that his first responsibility was to his own people, the Jewish people. But even though they were the priority, that did not exclude Gentiles. And that's that's very important for us to remind ourselves here. And, and the use of the of the connection, the, the illustration of bread, is also connected to this story, because prior to this story in chapter 6, we have the, the incident where Jesus feeds 5,000 people. That's a lot of people. He feeds them miraculously from a very small beginning, and the key here is to recognize that those were largely Jewish people, and there was a lot left over. See, the bread of life, and that's the connection here, the bread being the bread of life. Jesus makes that connection in other places. So the bread of life never ran short when Jesus fed a multitude, fed a crowd, and it didn't run short when he fed the 5,000. It's a reminder, and, and you know we don't think in these story imagination ways often, but it's clear that that's the connection that's being made here with his conversation with the woman. It's a reminder that there's more than enough salvation for all. And she reminds Jesus that even the little dogs, the puppies, the pet dogs under the table have bread left over from what the children didn't eat. So there's more than enough salvation for all. So Jesus, she's saying, Jesus, I know you've got to help your own people first, but then you can help us because there's plenty for all of us and we're willing to wait our turn. But please, hear my concern for my daughter, because there's more than enough for her. The same thing is true in the chapter that follows this story. In chapter 8, Jesus feeds 4,000 people. And again, they didn't run out. There was more than enough. There were leftovers. Again, the bread of life, salvation, there was plenty of that, more than enough, more than enough for the dogs under the table. Very interesting how these stories are arranged as, as Mark tells them to reinforce some of these ideas that we need to that we need to remember. So the children were first, absolutely, and it talks about them being filled, that there's plenty of salvation. It talks about the bread, the bread of life. We get all of that. We understand all of the references references to that. So the the imagery of children, dogs, bread being filled or having enough to eat so the children can eat all they want. All of that plays into our understanding of this salvation, salvation story and its connection using bread and children and puppies to make the point. And so the woman says to Jesus, very straightforwardly, Lord. Now, by saying Lord, she is doing something that no one else does in the Gospel of Mark. She's the only person in Mark that addresses Jesus as Lord. Very interesting that that happens. Very interesting that she gives that title to Jesus, and the only one who does so in the book of Mark, because she is two things that in that day, sadly, didn't count for a lot. She was a Gentile, and she was a woman. But obviously, in Jesus' eyes, she counted for a lot, which there's another lesson right there, isn't there? But she 
unabashedly refers to Jesus as Lord. And that's when she reminds him that, yes, she understands that his first priority was to the Jewish people, but there was also plenty for the children because even the dogs, even the puppies under the table had crumbs from the children. So Jesus, hearing her answer, says, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So what we have here is, is in simple terms and in terms that we sometimes use, maybe don't always connect to a story like this. Here we have an exorcism. Jesus drove out a demon. Now, it also is interesting that it's based upon his evaluation of her reply. Verse 29, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So he hears her reply. He hears her confidence in Jesus, calling him Lord, bowing down. All of these things demonstrates confidence. And we should make the connection that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. She demonstrated absolute confidence in Jesus. She was willing to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. He was higher than she was. She was willing to accept Jesus' priorities, that Jews need to come first, and that was his first responsibility. She was respectful and hopeful in the midst of that. She wasn't prickly or hypersensitive. She just approached Jesus in a straight-up manner. And here's really something absolutely fascinating about this story. Absolutely, absolutely kind of blows my mind. This is the only time in the Gospels, that's, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the only time in the Gospels that Jesus concedes an argument made by another. Now, we've seen Jesus in a lot of arguments when we read through the Gospels. I mean, he had a lot of these conversations with, with the religious authorities of that day. They challenged him. He pushed right back. And in all of those debates, when he took on the religious leaders or they took him on, in every single one, Jesus defeats the religious leaders. Every time. Sometimes he had pretty straight-up conversations with his disciples, and he was always he was always the one who had the right perspective, and they learned from him. But in this instant, the only time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John that Jesus conceded an argument to someone else was he conceded this argument to this Gentile woman. And don't miss all of that point. Don't, don't miss that at all. So he he agrees with her that she has made valid observation, and she has forthrightly demonstrated her faith and said, yes, I understand your concerns, your priorities. I understand that, but I also know that there's room for us as Gentiles, and there's crumbs off the table for the puppies. And so Jesus concedes this argument to this Gentile woman. Again, Gentiles were not considered such high-class people to Jews, and women in that day, sadly enough, were not. But doesn't it elevate our understanding of women? And all women should, should sit a little taller, stand a little taller, that here she went head-to-head, toe-to-toe, straight up with Jesus, and he understood what she was saying. And he agreed, and he healed her daughter. 
really a remarkable story, really, really just, just a thrilling kind of idea. So verse 30, the woman goes home, finds her child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. Now, that's, that's good enough, but think about this. This is the only miracle in Mark that Jesus performed at a distance. Jesus never saw the sick person. He never saw the little girl. He never argued that she needed what he had to offer. He never argued that, that there was a demon involved, but he never saw her. That was performed from, from a distance, and he gave no audible command for the demon to leave. And yet, the demon leaves, and the little girl is made whole. And one of the things we should observe about this is that driving out a demon restored the image of God in that little girl. See, we were created in the image of God. Genesis tells us that our culture, our country, too many people in the church have failed to recognize that we were created in the image of God, and that really does matter. That's, that's a hugely important understanding. And here we have a glimpse that, that Jesus came, and part of what he came to do was to restore the image of God in people, and in this little girl in particular, because he drove out a demon that did not belong. So let's review just a few things to make sure we, we understand the context of the story and some of the big themes of the story. And the first one that I want to make sure we recognize is that Jesus makes people clean. You know, we live in a world where people feel unclean. They feel like they can't come to Jesus. They feel like, well, maybe there's no hope for them. It's so bad. And some of them give up on themselves, and some of them that's an excuse. But sometimes people legitimately aren't sure that there's any help, any hope following Jesus. And can I assure you, if that's you, if Jesus can handle an impure spirit, a demon in a little girl, he can handle your problem. Is there a problem worse than a demon in a person? But Jesus makes people whole. He makes people clean. He works from the inside out. Those purity arguments he had with those guys, he solved those, resolved those, proved that right here in this story, he takes care of the inside and makes people clean. I think another thing we need to take away from this is look at this woman. She engaged Jesus by faith, and we should engage God by faith ourselves. Now, I've often said faith is, and you've probably gotten tired of it by now, or if you haven't, you will. Faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, and we need to engage God on that level. Now, it's not for us to tell God, you must do this or else. Uh, there's no place in that in the New Testament, in the Scriptures. God is God, and, and I'm not. And in case you didn't know, neither are you. But we can engage God by faith, and we can say to him things like what she said, but Lord, even so. And, and then, once we've made our case, we trust God with the outcome. But we can engage God by faith, and we should. We also should notice from this story that salvation is for all, for everyone. And Jesus said it's first to the children, first to the Jewish people. That was his priority. That's what was, what was being pointed out here in the way he uses the language and tells the story. But it didn't leave anybody out. And we know that from, from the Old Testament, from the temple itself. 
salvation is for all. There was a court of the Gentiles clearly marked out, clearly built to make room in the temple in Jerusalem. It was there in Jesus' day. It was a space that was intended for Gentiles so they could come and meet God and know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Salvation is for all. Jesus wants us to make room for everybody. And in our churches, in our lives, we need to make room for people and welcome them in and demonstrate to them that we're glad they're there because salvation is for all. And one of my favorite themes is that Jesus makes wrong things right. The wrong thing in this little girl was the demon, but Jesus made it right. And it points us to the, to the hope we have of the end of time, because one of these days, all of the wrongs will be made right. And Jesus is giving us a glimpse in his ministry, not just to the Jewish people, but here to this Gentile woman and her daughter, that he is going to make wrong things right. In fact, he comes to recreate, to put back together what sin has destroyed. For when sin entered the garden, it destroyed what God had started, and we began to endure the horrors that God never created us to endure. And sin destroyed all of that, but Jesus comes, comes today to restore that which was broken. And I want to remind you that if you need something restored in your life, that's what that's about. Psalm 23, one of our favorite psalms, he restores my soul. That's what Jesus does. He restored that little girl. He'll restore you. Come to him. Come to him with confidence. Demonstrate that confidence to him that you trust him. Bow down and let him make you clean. Let him give you salvation. Let him restore your soul. He wants to. He's eager to. We see that in this story. His conversation wasn't so much about reluctance as it was about clarity, because he healed that little girl and made her whole. Well, before we take a little break, I want to remind all of you again about a movie that I was privileged to preview a few days ago. I still am stunned by the, the power of that story, uh, or actually there were five stories in there. The title of the movie is Show Me the Father, and we live in a world that, that is suffering from a father deficit. And you understand what that means. Their fathers have abandoned their families. Uh, families have abandoned their fathers sometimes. I don't think we think about the, the other side of it, that sometimes families push fathers away because fathers can be a little interesting sometimes. That doesn't mean they're always bad. It just means that we've got to wrestle with that. And sometimes we don't want to wrestle with that. But this movie, Show Me the Father, it was put out by the creators of The War Room. You may remember seeing that. Uh, may, may remember seeing the movie Courageous. It's the same people that put that together. And it's a story about fathers and fatherhood. It's a story about the importance of fathers, the role of fathers. And I've got to tell you, there are surprises in the stories they tell that you just can't make up. You, you just can't. And these are true stories. I would never spoil it for you by, by telling you, but I want to give you this much, this much incentive to go that, that you need to take all of your friends, 
take your teenagers, encourage them to go and listen to the stories of the impact of fathers in the lives of these people. Some of them are stories of devastation and loss. Some of them are stories of redemption and hope, but they all remind us that we have a God in heaven who is our heavenly father. And in the same way we saw Jesus come to this woman and from a distance heal her daughter, God will come to you and he will touch you in ways you can't imagine through this movie. And I just want to invite you to take that opportunity because there are so many issues that go on and so many uh, frustrations that people have with life. Uh, so many fathers feel like they're pushed aside. So many families feel like they don't have fathers. So many little kids need a father in their lives. And this shows the power of that and invites us to embrace God as our Heavenly Father. It's just really a captivating story. Oh, and by the way, I, maybe I shouldn't say this because some of you might not like it, but it uses football in part of the story. Yeah, can you imagine football and fathers? But it's really a, a, an insightful way that it tells the story and very valuable. And to see how God in his grace has used people in important and strategic places in the lives of, of other young men to help make a difference for them. It'll help you develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Well, in just a moment, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back and look at the story that follows this one. Now, this was the story of the woman who couldn't keep still. Now we're going to look at the story of the man who couldn't speak, and we're going to try to understand and gain insight from what God is up to and how we can approach God and learn from Him and how God can open our ears and our voices so we can speak for Him. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -E -L -L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. AmericaOutloud.com is the alternative from the agenda-driven globalist. Here, we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. On-demand podcast or real-time talk radio with our streaming apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Well, we're back 
back from a short break and glad you're still here. And I heard all of you saying, when is this movie coming out? You told us so much about it and you said we should go, but when is it coming out? Well, I heard you and I'm so glad you're asking that question and waiting to listen for the answer because the answer is it comes out on September 10th. It will be released nationwide on September 10th. I hope it's in one of your local theaters where you are. If it is, I encourage you to go. Don't miss this opportunity. You will want to see it. Go the first weekend so you can talk to your friends about it and encourage them to go. But it starts September 10th. All right, we talked about a woman who could not keep still. She went to Jesus and she threw herself down in front of him and begged him to heal her daughter. And they had a conversation and Jesus did. Now we come to a man who could not speak. And his friends bring him to Jesus. So let's read the story from, again, Mark chapter 7. This story follows the other one. And it's not an accident when the Gospels put stories together in the way they do. And here's a story of a man who cannot hear, cannot speak. And Jesus is the difference again. So Mark chapter 7, verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There were some people there, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Apaphatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Wow, how about that? Jesus does everything well, they said. Well, let's take a look at this story because it has some other insights for us that will help us understand Jesus and what he's doing. And some parts of the story will be a little surprising to us because we don't really understand the context very well, but that's why we do these things to help each other to understand so that we'll know what's going on. So the man is described as deaf and and having difficulty speaking wouldn't be a surprise because if you can't hear, you can't speak really well. And the people who brought him to Jesus begged Jesus to heal him. That's what he needed. That's what they wanted. And so they flat out asked Jesus, would you do it? Now, Jesus took the man aside and we see like the others apparently didn't see, but Jesus took the man aside and in private, or at least mostly private. There were enough people there that the story was told to us. Somebody saw what happened and could later report it, and Mark wrote it down for us. So we might ask the question, um, Jesus sometimes did things in public. Why would he do this in private? That's just kind of an unusual thing. So, so what's going on with that? Well, he probably did it in private to avoid a spectacle. In those days, there were magicians who would do their tricks and crowds gathered to see them. And likely there would have been a crowd that would have loved to see what Jesus was doing. They would have liked to see the man heal 
the, the man healed in front of them. But, but Jesus isn't into spectacle, so he doesn't do that. Now, it's also reported in, the, in those days that magicians would employ certain gestures, but Jesus doesn't do that. He commonly, and you remember this from other stories in the Bible, he commonly would just speak, and the miracle would take place because he spoke. In fact, in the story we just talked about, the first part of the program, Jesus didn't even directly speak to drive the demon out. It just tells us the demon was gone. So Jesus wasn't trying to impress people in that way, uh, and he doesn't do that. He, he also knew that sometimes deaf people use signs, and, and he didn't really want to make any kind of spectacle like that out of it. He just wanted to demonstrate for the people who saw it what was going on and that, that the man would be healed, and he wanted to help the man so he would be able to, to go from there with the ability to hear and to speak. Now, Jesus does a few things that are, well, how should we say, can we say to our way of thinking weird? Well, I guess we can say that because when Jesus takes him aside and, and goes about the process of healing him, it tells us that he put his fingers in the man's ears. And, uh, you know, we don't tend to think about that. We think of laying out of hands and that's not so unusual, but, but here Jesus put his fingers in the man's ears. Well, okay, that's a little unusual, but then it says, and, and I'm sure you picked this up, Jesus spit and touched the man's tongue. And I can hear some of you saying, ooh, that's gross. Well, I get that. One of the interesting things is that in the Judaism of that time, it was not uncommon, and I know it's really weird to us. Okay, so we just have to accept and understand the context of these times. It was not uncommon to associate saliva with some kind of curative powers. And Jesus used saliva, at least one other instance of healing. That was the healing of a blind man. So for Jesus to use saliva would not have seemed as strange to them as it does to us. The text doesn't really explain why he did it that way. For some reason, he thought that was important for us to understand. Some people have suggested, well, it was a type of anointing that Jesus did. Well, I don't know about that. It doesn't really say that. It just pretty straight up tells us what Jesus did. Now, in order to accomplish this idea of, of using his saliva, probably Jesus would spit into his own hand and then apply the saliva to the man's tongue. And again, I know I hear you saying, ooh, that's gross. Well, I, I get it. We all get it. But that is what happened. And for whatever reason, that's what Jesus did in order to affect the healing of the man. Did he have to? We have evidence he wouldn't have had to, but he did. And, and it's instructive for us to think about how Jesus took this man away from a potential public spectacle and, and did these specific actions that resulted in his healing. So Jesus put his fingers in his ear, he touched his tongue, and then just to make sure we all understand that this was not power that was from some other place, Jesus looked up to heaven. Clearly, when he looked up to heaven, that was an indication of prayer or an appeal to God. So Jesus looks up to heaven so that all of those observers that were right there could recognize that he was appealing to God and asking God to touch the man. 
It's also curious that it records that Jesus sighed deeply. Again, we don't have an explanation. It doesn't tell us here why he sighed. Uh, people have speculated that maybe Jesus was exhausted, and so he had been worn down by ministry. It doesn't say that. I mean, we can speculate that. We do know that when he sighed like that, that's an emotional kind of expression. So clearly, Jesus felt the intensity of this man who had been afflicted with deafness and the inability to speak well, and it, and it clearly showed by his emotional response some kind of care for the situation and something that he was deeply involved with. So, he's, so all that happened, and then he looked at the man, and he said, be opened. Now, the, the text gives us a word that's likely Aramaic. People who study this will tell us that. Some other people have suggested it's a different language, but it wasn't. It, it, it's clearly delineated in here as a, as a special saying that Jesus makes. Well, in those days, sometimes some of these uh, magician types would have incantations or whatever, and so they would use special words. Jesus wasn't trying to match them, but it was just an expression of maybe what the people had come to expect, and, and so they wouldn't have been surprised, and they may have understood it. Interesting phrase that he uses, though, is be opened. So the ears were stopped, and now Jesus says, be opened. And the result of the looking up to heaven, the sighing, and the command, be opened, were the man's ears were opened, and his tongue loosened, just like that. And, and in fact, it says immediately, some of the text in NIV, it says, at this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak. So immediately, right away, no hesitation. The man's ears are opened, his tongue is loosened, and he spoke clearly. Now, what's important about that is the immediacy of it, of course, and, and when you think about the man's tongue being loosened and he spoke clearly, he hadn't heard clear speech, and yet now he was able to speak clearly. So the, the miracle went beyond simply restoring his ability to hear and to speak. It also immediately made him able to speak clearly like anybody else and everybody else could. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Jesus, when he touches people, it's pretty complete. It's not just halfway. He really does the job, and that's amazing, and that's remarkable. Well, another thing happens that has happened quite frequently in the life of Jesus. Jesus orders the people to tell no one. He commanded them. It's clear. It's, it's, it uses the word in the English text that Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But it goes on to say the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. The more he ordered them not to talk, the more they proclaimed Jesus. Isn't that remarkable? Uh, it kind of reminds me that people are people, and they just do what they do, and they were so caught up with all of this that they it seems as though they couldn't help themselves. Even though Jesus asked them not to tell, they just could not refrain from doing it. Goes on to say in verse 37 that, that the people were overwhelmed with amazement. That's the way the NIV puts it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. Now, again, that's not uncommon in terms of a response in the gospel of Mark. More than once, Mark makes that observation that people were amazed. What 
kind of person was this? Who was this that was doing this? And here they're amazed again, and they use the expression, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Everything well. Well, that should remind us, and, and it does, it helps us think this through and understand this, that that at the time of creation, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. It was very good. You see, creation, as God made it, was very good. It was not marred, damaged at any level or in any way by sin. That came later in the Garden of Eden when the tree that God said stay away from, they thought was great, and they sinned by eating the fruit. And as a result of that, God's good creation was now damaged by sin, and the damage would continue. So when they say he has done everything well, it's a clear connection to God saw all that he had made, and it was very good from Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. It, it reminds me and I think it should remind all of us that, that again, what Jesus is demonstrating in the Gospels, and, and one of the important things to learn and to recognize it from the life of Jesus, is that he came to make all of these things that had fallen apart, he came to start putting them back together, because what we understand that he will do one day is make a new heaven and a new earth that is completely healed, we might say, completely compensates for, completely restores the problem of sin. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. And, and with this man, here's a man who had been physically damaged, but Jesus healed him and restored the image of God in the deaf man, because people were created in the image of God. And now this man, being made whole physically, is restored in the image of God, and he now can live the life the way God meant him to live it. It's a remarkable illustration. We should not miss that. That's a big part of what Jesus was doing when he did these miracles. Yes, it helped the individual people, but in a, in a big picture sense, he was saying to us, to all of heaven and all of earth, that I'm going to restore what sin has ruined. I'm going to put it back together. And so he did that with this man. See, we learn from 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And so he's doing that here. He's doing that in the life of this man. It's not God that makes people deaf and unable to speak. It's not God that sends demons into little girls. It's not God that does any of that. But it is God in the person of Jesus that came to destroy the devil's work. And so God in Jesus takes on all of the devil's destruction, in this case, deafness, in the previous case, demon possession, and he just takes care of business and makes it all right, recreates, restores, renews what had been broken and marred by the effects of sin. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The devil comes to destroy but Jesus comes to destroy the devil's work by restoring and making whole again. And that's very good news. People have lost sight of that sometimes, I think. 
And that's very good news for us, that God wants to restore us and to make us whole again. It's also quite interesting that, that when Jesus said to the people, don't talk about this, they just talked about it, and they shared it all the more. Um, I guess you could say that, that Jesus was restoring in them the ability to give testimony to God so that they would know. So, well, all of that's interesting, but it does bring up another question. Well, if Jesus came to destroy the devil's works, why didn't he just finish the job and be done with it? Because today we still suffer from disease. We still see people die. We still see people who have terrible infirmities for a long time in their life, blindness, deafness, other things. So if Jesus came to do that, why didn't he finish the job? Well, in one respect, he did finish the job. Because when he took the sin of the world on himself, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, when he took the sin of the world on himself, he destroyed the devil's work of sin. And he broke the power of that sin in our lives. And you don't have to be kicked around by sin anymore. You can rise above that. That's part of what we mean when we say we want to stretch toward God's high calling. God does not leave us in our sin. And so in that sense, Jesus finished the job. We see a glimpse of what he wants to do in the physical sense with these healings here. And there's no question that he wants us to grasp the significance of that. But we also know because we have the, the benefit of looking back, of realizing that Jesus destroyed the works of Satan when he carried sin on the cross and paid the penalty for that and broke the power of canceled sin in our lives. We don't have to be pushed around by that anymore. Now, the other side of that is, well, okay, so we get that, and sometimes we say that's good, and we don't fully wrestle with the implications. I want to encourage you to wrestle with those implications. But then we say, well, okay, I, I kind of get that. That's on a spiritual level, da 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 But I really want to know why Jesus doesn't just fix the problem and, and just take care of business and get, get rid of all this evil and wickedness in the world today. And, and I understand that perspective completely. You probably do too. Never before in my lifetime, and, and I haven't lived as long as some people, but I've lived a while, Never before in my lifetime have I seen the clear difference that we are facing a battle between good and evil. Now, it's sometimes it's framed as this kind of battle or this kind of battle or this kind of war, or that kind of war, maybe in an economic sense or a political sense or a sociological sense. But ultimately, in every situation, the more I see it, the clarity that God is giving us is that this is a battle between good and evil. And so when we see that, it's normal for us. I share your concern. Why doesn't God just get it done? Why is he waiting? If Jesus came to destroy the devil's work, why didn't he just destroy all of it and do the work of recreation right now? Well, we don't have insight in terms of God's timing. We do have some insights in terms of, of why he's delaying and some of the things he says to, to us who are concerned about that delay. And one of the really interesting statements comes from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Why does God wait? Well, 2 Peter tells us, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay. Okay, so right there we have an idea 
that what we see as delay isn't what God sees as delay. All right, so, so Peter is reminding us that he doesn't delay the way we think of delay. Okay, so we need to understand that God thinks about things differently than we do. That comes as no real surprise, does it? We, we get that. I, I sometimes think we're not patient with that. We don't want to hear that. We don't want to let God be God. And, and we need to do that. So 2 Peter 3.9 says, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all come to repentance. And when I read that, I have a little more insight into to my, um, how should I say, impatience, my desire, maybe your desire to say, I just wish God would take care of this and crush evil and restore his creation? Well, God looks at it differently because it says he's more interested in people coming to him in repentance, in changing their lives than he is in destroying them. So, you know, when we think about delay, it's not delay as much as it's love because God does not first want to destroy. He first wants to reconcile, and he wants people to change their lives and follow him. He doesn't want them to die. He wants them to have life. And so I have to remind myself, and maybe we should remind each other, that my impatience does not reflect God's desire that people should not perish. My impatience seems to reflect more my desire for God to take care of the evil. And you know, the best way for God to take care of evil is to make it whole. And the best way for God to take care of evil people is to drive the demon out of them. The best way for God to take care of evil is to restore that which is broken so that people are made whole, like the man who could not hear and could not speak. So let's be a little less impatient with God and a little more loving and recognize that, that uh, God does know what he's doing, and his love is, is clearly demonstrated in his desire to reconcile with people and to not crush them, not see them die. So when we review this story a little bit, let's remind ourselves of some of the things that we saw. First, Jesus prayed. He looked up to heaven, and, and he called on God. It's really fascinating that we should recognize that for Jesus, healing was not a spectacle. You know, I don't want to throw stones at anybody, but too many times in church traditions, healing becomes a spectacle, and it should not be. It's meant to be restorative for God to touch the people. It's really interesting that Jesus said to the man who could not speak and could not hear, his ears were opened and his tongue was loosed reminds us that we need our ears opened to hear what God says. Sometimes we need to step back and say, wait a minute, I just need to take a breath and let God speak to me and demonstrate my willingness to hear what he says, because it's not about me persuading God as much as it's me agreeing with God. The woman in the first story, she agreed with Jesus. And then she said, but in the context of this Jesus, there's still more than enough. 
She didn't argue with him so much as she agreed and extended his idea. And we need to have ears to hear and tongues to speak the truth of God. And maybe this story is another way of reminding us because the people at the end couldn't keep quiet. They had to tell everybody that God was recreating. He was making things new. And above all of that, both of these stories remind us that Jesus is the ultimate authority. We can trust him. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Who else could drive out demons but Jesus? Who else could heal someone who could not hear and could not speak clearly? Jesus showed that he is the ultimate authority and that gives us faith. That gives us confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So live your life built on that authority. Build your life on the confidence that Jesus rules and reigns and we can trust him and we will. And we'll be back next week to encourage each other with another dose of faith and trust in God. See you then.